This episode is part of our series discussing the debate topics released for Debatable Open 2021. The motions can be found in the description along with timestamps for your convenience. Please enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Debatable. For this episode, we are pleased to welcome Gianno Libot, a two-time ESL quarter-finalist for Worlds, a two-time champion of Ateneo Debate Open, the champion and finals best speaker of La Salle InterVarsity 2017, a finals where I was utterly defeated by Gianno, and my past teammate for CSBIV back in the long-lost era of physical tournaments. So Gianno is our motion contributor for international relations. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, good evening, or good Hi. morning, however you're listening to this, whatever time. <laughs> yeah, so um, we wanted to ask you what you felt was unique with um, IR as a theme, and what are the essential skills that debaters, especially novices, would need to have in order to mm. reliably do well um, in, in these kinds of um, motions. Yeah, I think IR in general is probably the most um, expected or conventional topic in most tournaments based from our experience. I think the uniqueness there is that you're always going to have an IR motion. <laughs> Unlike, um, I guess, more niche or growing uh, topics like gender and economic. Maybe economics is like second to IR, but IR is definitely out there. Um I think the other thing with IR that maybe not a lot of people think about is it's really, I mean, it's a, a large part of it is knowing um, how the world works. But I think the other thing that be, maybe people miss is just knowing how your community or society works. And, you know, we, we try so hard to think big, but in, in reality, a lot of what functions uh, internationally also can be parallel to what happens in our direct communities. All right. So, so I suppose that for novice debaters, maybe a tip would be to be less intimidated about it and think of it less in terms of like these big concepts like nation mm. states and more mm. about like these are just relationships between actors, just like um, you and I would have relationships yeah. between actors. So. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think. You know, as as I've probably grown more accustomed to debates and maybe even in the real world in general, a lot, a lot of what happens, uh, you can see in the way it's reflected on, you know, specific uh, direct societies that you have, whether it's your your village association interacting with authorities, whether it's your um, organization or group uh, interacting with other groups, and you can just, I, I guess take it larger and imagine how that behaves and you'll see that no you know there's there's a it's not a surprise why sometimes even model united nations can be uh, seen as like a, a a step in the door into international mm-hmm. relations yeah yeah so let's jump straight into the first motion which is about the uk specifically um the decision to merge the department for international development and um, foreign and Commonwealth Office. Beyond mm-hmm. the info slide, what other contexts would be like applicable or would be advantageous for a person, especially a debater, to know? Specifically, off the top, off the top of my head, what is the main difference between these two departments in the first place, 
um, which gave mm. rise to this motion. Like, yeah. why is it so controversial? I think, well, in general, uh, for you to be successful in IR debates, you really need to matter load in an extent. Mm. There's really no excuse to it. Like, you can't wing yeah. it. Um, maybe you can, but uh, I think oftentimes, if you really want to succeed, you ha- really have to matter load. I think the basics here are really um, about uh, aid in general, or development aid, whichever type of, or charity, you know. Uh, it's the old, uh, the the old school classic theme of should aid be un- uh, conditional or unconditional, and I think what what the merger uh, in the UK's recent uh, move represents is this combination of development and foreign policy being forged together. So the way, uh, you know, the UK government is is gearing more towards right now is more towards fusing their development agenda with their foreign policy agenda uh, and that ha- that has a lot of consequences so if you can imagine that that maybe from um, your own own organization's charity drives should you tie those drives up with interests like i don't know mm. uh, being being more uh, spe- specifically giving to an organization that you will um, benefit from or a community that you will benefit from uh, whether that's going to have some uh, exchanges or, or conditions like we will give this in the hopes of you maybe opening up a trade port in that area so uh, the, it really this is a classic debate of um, whether or not development aid should have strings attached or um, interests attached which is uh, we try to pretend that there isn't but I think yeah. it, it matters all right, so I think that's very interesting that you mentioned like there, there's no way around it, but in 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 I guess in real life and in, in the debate context, you can matter load as much as you want, but there are a lot of times where you're just straight up unlucky that you just happen mm-hmm. to not have matter loaded on this particular um, <laughs> topic. So assuming that there would be this kind of person who didn't know that kind of matter, um, like they didn't know anything that we just talked about, mm. how do you recommend that they go about debating this motion? Mm. I think that's a really difficult question. But I, I think if, if I were in that position, I'd probably just look for context clues within within the motion. So obviously this is an aid motion and any, any kind of aid motion, any motion that talks about uh, development assistance, this will always be, I guess at the heart of, of of that conversation. So that could be your initial strand, even if you know nothing about um, uh, UK aid in general or this new um, organization called the FCDO. You, you try to think about that. Um, you can also probably think about you know uh, British history if you know a little bit about that. So context clues on on that one. Mm, the other thing you can probably think about is. I guess you can read the info slide quite well. Uh, you know, it, it's quite evident in the way, you know, the the wording of the organizations themselves are, are being phrased. So, you know, DFID is a development-centered, uh, you know, the name, it speaks for itself, whereas the new organization is called FCDO, it's like Foreign Commonwealth something. So, I don't know. That's another context too. <laughs> so I understand it's a it's a really hard motion. Uh, I mean, it's not really hard, but it's it's just hard in the matter of context. But if you can get over the the pronouns, uh, it's actually a pretty straightforward, simple, simple motion if you think about it. Yeah. So I've read up on this motion quite a bit, and there were also issues on 
the composition of the new department, mm-hmm. like how exactly mm-hmm. you'll merge. So besides the discussion of aid, um, besides the discussion of the practicality, what other arguments do you imagine government and opposition to be running and what issues do you think they'd be focusing on for this debate? Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I so looking at this motion, I'm I'm thinking if if you're on if you're on affirmative side, you're probably thinking of this idea that um you know the challenges of 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 spending for aid in general, especially in today's society, that people are asking, you know, what's the proof? These aren't this is this isn't free money. This is paid for by the taxes of uh, the British citizens. So governments are uh, even even in a more demand to show that these kinds of investments uh, mean something. So I guess you could be a bit more. <clears throat> Not thinking of arguments yet. I'm just thinking of an approach. Uh, you could be a bit more, uh, what's the word, cold or uh, a bit more practical and say, let's mm-hmm. face it, uh, aid isn't free. There's no such thing as free lunch. We need to make sure that these kinds of interventions uh, are tied up to our foreign interests. Uh, and this kind of move definitely puts us uh, in a more honest and uh, practical direction. So I would I would probably start for that with with government side. Um, the other thing is, I, I think um, you could also talk about, you know, how it focuses more on, on impact, how it allows for uh, British society to have a bit more of a, of a direct hand in the way um, aid can be, you know, directed. Because uh, before, I think it, it matters when you think about the composition. Before, uh, you had a very separate department that they could pursue uh, very, very d- different interests oftentimes, even in, say, you know, a, a country like, like, like Myanmar. Um, even if there's no like, foreign policy interest there, but there's a human rights interest, uh, the older composition of, of the program could still pursue projects there. But now with, uh, with a move like this, you can see that you know, those kinds of countries are a dead, dead investment. That's rather focused our goals on countries that really matter to us or like can be proven to be more of a, of a benefit towards us. So it's, it's, I think it's really more of um, angling this in the focus of why is it beneficial for uh, the British government. Uh, I think for opposition, you, you go back to the heart of um, you know, the aspiration for development aid. It should be centered on ideals and principles such as human rights, such as allowing societies to to grow, um, trying to counter uh, forces that erode democracies in many parts of the world. And sometimes those those investments don't uh, match up to um, foreign foreign policy agenda. Or there's no economic benefit towards, or there's no direct economic benefit rather towards investing there. So it's more of like a heartstring approach if you're on op. Whereas the government side is more of like a cerebral, um, in in our pockets uh, kind of approach. Right. So so thank you so much for that. So so what's interesting to me is really the discussion on transition of power and the whole idea of like changing the philosophy of these departments, which I think is kind of bleeds into as well the second motion, um, talking about how exactly the U.S. would transition in terms of their government and their presidency. So the second motion reads, this has released that the incoming Joe Biden and Kamala Harris um, administration should 
um, offered Donald Trump and his allies amnesty from future prosecution in exchange for a peaceful transition of power. Um, what specific instances and like pieces of matter do you think debaters should know regarding what the Trump camp is doing and what the Biden camp is doing for them to debate this motion properly? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a good segue. I would say it's a, this motion is like uh, going back to the aspirational world uh, that mm. we had, uh, whereas the first motion really is uh, transitioning towards like, you know um, post uh, post authoritarian uh, regime. Mm. Um, I think for this one, it's 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 good to know that um, specifically that the administration of of Donald Trump has had a lot of allegations of corruption historically. Uh, in fact, he's most of his cohorts have either been um, either on trial or have been already found guilty. I think just recently he even pardoned um, national security, former national security advisor Michael Flynn. Yeah. Um, so, so those in, in general um, kind of highlight that there's something going on with that government. And, and so this motion, it's not actually a new motion. It's just new. The, the context is new, but we've seen this before. We've seen um, bargains for amnesty for di- for dictators, quote unquote, before. Only this time, you're not really seeing a uh, a classic dictator, but you're seeing a, uh, a a new one, a new version, one that was democratically elected, and one that obviously um, is trying his very best not to make a, a, a peaceful transition of power. Whereas previous motions would probably look at um, post-revolutions, wherein uh, I don't know. In the past, we we've had debates on um, the former dictator of Sudan um, exiting peacefully, or Robert Mugabe exiting peacefully, so that um, a new government can can transition better. This one is more fresh because we're talking about Donald Trump and we're talking about an election that has already been won, um, but he's trying his very best to. To, to damage that kind of transition. So, so knowing about that uh, pieces of history and also knowing about the current trends and the fact that um, it's been really hard for the the incoming Joe Biden and Kamala Harris administration to to hold. I mean, it, it was just a few weeks ago that the 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 GSA allowed for them to to access funds, but that's not the end of the deal. That just enables them to form a cabinet and get started, but. <clears throat> the greater task is actually um, patching a, a very damaged uh, society, which has, you know, think about Joe Biden, 80, close to 80 million votes, but Trump also has like 72 million. So and that's another, I guess, matter. Sorry, I'm just thinking <laughs> about so many mm-hmm. other things you can probably think uh, that, can, that can help you out in this particular motion. Um, I, I thought it was very interesting because I didn't think of it that way. I I, I haven't compared this motion to <clears throat> the previous motions about um, offering amnesty to dictators. And I remember mm. um, I was a very new debater. Like I think it's just like 2011. This was the finals of mm. um, UADC or something. Mm. Um, and it was about offering amnesty to dictators in exchange for uh, a transition of power. Um, but would it be fair to say that in this debate, um, it's a mostly about weighing the possibility of prosecuting Trump and sort of the urgency um, of a peaceful transition to, towards a Biden administration, and where, um, unlike in previous motions where it was about 
we really need to reestablish our institutions post-revolution. This is more about like we really need to get the COVID situation in check. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that could be an urgency, the the, the COVID reality. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you look at um, American society and American democracies, they're very adversarial during elections. But that symbol of of handing over actually gives a lot of administrations that necessary fresh start, mm-hmm. and this allows for, you know, pockets of dissent or ramblings from different parts of society to, to climb over and maybe endanger a, a fresh administration. And, and they, they have one of the shortest um, handovers in most democracies. Like, but we're going to see Trump, I mean, we're going to see Joe Biden um, be inaugurated in January. Like, it's like super duper close. Yeah. So <clears throat> that that sense of urgency is, is there. Um, COVID is there. And I think the other thing that maybe some people may miss out is the forces that are drawn to Donald Trump, they're potentially very dangerous and incendiary too. Like, you know, you're not just talking about the evangelicals or the, the far right, but you're, you're also looking at, you know, the proud boys, those who are gun-toting and those that, that can be uh, easily agitated by a disgruntled or desperate uh, Donald Trump. So if he knows that in general, he, he might be prosecuted in the future, you might use uh, those kinds of forces to, I don't know, sow the dissent, so so chaos to the point that he won't be prosecuted. So that's an, another thing. It's it's almost like a, I would say it's almost like a militia type of, of behavior um, that you that you'll see in other dictators, but or other authoritarians. Although this one's just democratically elected. That's the weird thing. From the perspective of Biden, uh, Biden's camp. Um, what arguments could you give for government and opposition as to why it might be strategic for them to consider this in the first place? So we already know that Trump has a lot of power, um, whether we like it or not, a lot of ability to cause and um, and sow chaos into the transition if he so pleases. But like, what what do you think is the chances of success for the Biden camp to actually like get, gain the peaceful transition? And what are the consequences if they choose? not to and just continue to i don't know what they're doing now um basically assert um mm, that they are yeah. going to prosecute trump in the future mm-hmm. i think there's there's been discussions on that um th- this is probably going to be a familiar term for, for most but it's, it's more about uh restorative or like retrospective justice like you know what kind of of justice are we trying to fight for is it uh saving American lives, you know, citizens that are under COVID and those that desperately need a new kind of leadership, or is the administration so uh, bent on principles or on ideals and objectives that, regardless of whether Trump uh, peacefully exits or not, they're gonna they're gonna run a prosecution against him in the future, and that will have consequences, I think, because uh, Trump's not gonna take it, uh, you know, peacefully. If they do that, you know, under the under the guise of or under the the hanging sword of, of being prosecuted in the future, he's gonna try his best to either uh, rally the the new Republican leadership, uh, which he's also trying to subvert right now as well. Like you know, mm-hmm. put people in that that that, that respect him. They, they've even got like a a code name now for for some Republicans who don't side with them, like Rhinos, Republicans in, ma- in name only. So even the branding's already in, in check. 
So you can see that if, if there's going to be a potential, I think the counterfactual is if there's going to be a potential uh, case in the future, um, you are going to see you know heated battles, not just on court, because I think the courts one is probably going to be a bit more complicated, but just um, on airwaves, on social media, you know, on on unusual discourse, he's going to instead of instead of allowing the the Biden government to to hold authority, he's going to assert uh, complications towards that. So so I think if you're gov, you're really going to be harping more towards that, like being able to quote unquote unify the American society more, and that that's more of a priority for you. Um, <clears throat> It's like a short, short-term, you know, a long-term goal rather. Um, I can imagine opposition trying to argue something like, "Why can't we have both a peaceful transition and um, prosecution of Trump?" Which, to me, I, I mean, I want to ask you: Would that be a valid or effective strategy on opposition, or does this motion necessarily imply that there's a trade-off that you can only get one or the other? And if there is a trade-off, how do you think opposition should, so I think like go around or maneuver around um, proving this trade-off in their favor? So, I mean, that kind of clash is possible. Um, I just think that it's a it's a it's it's a particularly weak clash in a sense that the current facts and trends don't really match that peacefulness. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> Trump has uh, stopped tweeting and uh, you know new alternative media forces like Newsmax or, or OAN um, have, have stopped uh, airing their side of the, of the, of the fence. So it's, it's unlikely. So, so I think the reality is that this is going to be a trade-off, but I think opposition isn't defenseless as well. Like, you know, so, so much of history, so much of American justice is, is also about this particular brand of making sure that, People who make mis- who who make mistakes and who make crimes always have to have to pay. So, being able to being able to forgive Donald Trump all of a sudden because of because of just being just needing to to take hold of of power peacefully, it's gonna damage uh, you know the 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 American institution. It's gonna damage. Their concept of justice. Uh, it's not going to make the Democrats happy, especially those that are, I guess, more the these emerging social Democrats who 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 be- really believe that um, uh, Donald Trump is, is culpable of, of many things, uh, 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 you know, corruption, fraud, uh, collusion with Russia, many many other things. Even e- even the deaths right now of uh, that. That for them are cost of of, of the mishandling of COVID nineteen. You know, think about what they feel if this is going to be the the bargain that the the Biden administration would um, would entertain. So I think it's you're not really defenseless if you're if if you're opposition. You do have that particular material, and, and, and I think that's a hard trade off to to commit to. Mm. Like you know, you'll have leadership on paper. You'll you'll have this. Um, like uh, a surface level, uh, genuine uh, partnership between two transitioning governments, but at what cost are we are we affording that? So, so I would I would take that if I were off. Mm-hmm. 
speaking of something that might sound or look good on paper, <laughs> but might not necessarily be, you know, good in practice, <laughs> we can move on to the third motion, which is about, sure. <laughs> which is about um, the shift from the use of the United Nations peacekeeping forces in favor of more regional peacekeeping mm-hmm. forces, um, like military units organized by organizations like ECOWAS or NATO or the African Union. Um, would you think that, I mean, aside from the info slide, what other pieces of information or matter do you think that a, a novice debater should know um, in order to debate this well? For example, like what really is the difference um, between the UN as a peacekeeping force versus like regional peacekeeping forces, like in terms of their interests or how they operate, those kinds of things? Yeah, I, I think this specific motion, even without that much matter, I think the contrast is already quite obvious. You have a military, a military group that's regionally composed, whereas the UN can be, I don't know, quote unquote, international. So I would expect the teams who debate this would at least know that the UN is international so they can make an association though this is an international force whereas the other one is probably regional. So on that level, you can already see, I guess, pros and cons. Uh, regional would be, <clears throat> they have advantage of knowing their neighbors. You know, they're a bit more, I guess, there's, there's, there's a bit more of affiliation uh, when it comes to operations. So they would, from just from a purely military perspective, they would know the terrain better. They would be able to assemble faster and quicker. Um, and also they represent a, I guess, uh, projection of, of unified regional interests. So that's an advantage, whereas the UN could oftentimes step in and assert more of an internationalist uh, perspective. Um, <clears throat> for the UN, um, you could say that regional interests aren't always uh, a good thing. You know, could be a, a competing region. There could be an underlying uh, ethnic or, or tribal or even... Um, sort of domestic um, interests. And you can have examples for this, but but yeah, that could be one thing. So it's, it doesn't mean that if you're regional, you're you're always, a, you're always good or you're always welcome, especially if maybe somehow his, by history, some of those regional forces represented invading forces before. Uh, so that's, that's another thing. Um, resources could be, but I, I think resor- the resource point is probably a bit moot. Like it depends on who has more information. I, I don't think it's a winning issue, um, but I think the mandate though is is probably a, a winning issue, um, in the sense that um, the UN peacekeeping has a bit more of an international mandate. Like it's agreed upon by by you know the, the United Nations Security Council. They're the ones that that decide on the mandate of a, of a peacekeeping force, whereas uh, regional forces is, is pretty much like how it says on the info sites, it's decided by, by a region. So you're going to get a bit more of a, of a, of a consensus support from, from the mandate of peacekeepers as opposed to the regional forces. Um, what's the other thing? I, 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 I think this, also, this motion also is about this classic um, issue with UN peacekeepers in general that has been historically uh, underperforming, it's missed its mark. And even recently, if you've been reading the news, it's also been plagued with 
a lot of allegations on sexual abuse by foreign uh, peacekeepers, especially in West Africa, you know, the French-speaking side of Africa, where a lot of uh, French or Algerian speak uh, uh, peacekeeping forces were were sent. So, you know, there's many things to think of uh, peacekeeping in general needing to be reformed and and also. The other comparison would be, again, also on the news a few years ago, um, is the overperformance or almost seeming seemingly glorified performance of, of some of the uh, regional forces. Like if you just Google ECOWAS, you can see how it's been successful in um, forcing a, pe a peaceful tra transition in, in the Gambia, for example, uh, when they sent uh, forces there and it, it, it forced the Gambian government uh, to transfer uh, power peacefully because of the threat of, uh, of that particular regional group. And <clears throat> these were composed of uh, forces from, from neighboring countries in West Africa, Senegal, um, among others, Nigeria. So, so yeah, that, that could be, I guess, one information I can think of. You've already mentioned that this is a very classic discussion, and I've encountered this a lot in debate. I've also encountered this a lot in my policy classes back when I was an undergrad. So what do you think would be possible extensions for debaters who have already encountered this in the past? Are there more recent events, for example, from this year? Is there a possible COVID angle, or is there a relationship to U.S. elections you think that could be explored? Because I've been hearing in past debates attempts of doing so and most times in IR they have been successful so I'm kind of curious if there's a possibility of that being done here as well yeah that's a that's a good point uh, there are a couple of emerging trends for peacekeeping that debaters that want to get get good at, at this motion a bit <laughs> a bit a bit more um, maybe you can think of the slowly evolving leadership in in the peacekeeping arena um, especially with China investing a lot on on peacekeeping and wanting to to actually be uh, premiered much bigger than they were before, uh, so they're actually they're actually positioning insofar as just troop contribution even in in spending. So that's a that's a particular trend, and, and this relates with China's interest in Africa as well, which where most of the peacekeep peacekeepers are actually often being deployed. So. That's one trend you can look at. The, the other thing is I think you can also look at how, how regional forces are historically or have been deployed historically, whether they've been effective or, or not. Like uh, I pointed towards the, the ECOWAS example, but even the, the recent um, deployments of NATO is also another, another issue with the mm. kind of politics that they're facing. Maybe the changes with Joe Biden, but I think with the Trump administration, it also faced a lot of constraints and, and, and the problem with I, th I think regional it's not a problem but the interesting thing with regional forces is that they're very you know short-lived and so far their missions are concerned they're not like peacekeepers that stay there for quite some time and, and really act as a, as a buffer oftentimes they're deployed for a very specific mission and once they think that they've achieved that then they they leave um, so you can ask yourself is that reflective of the reality of conflicts these days. Like are conflicts resolved in two, three, four months or do some of them last longer? Uh, and in those cases, should we, or should we discard peacekeepers? 
that's, so that's... I, I think it's interesting you mentioned as well, like different actors that will come into play, like China's growing role, um, as well as the U.S.'s failure recently. Um, mm-hmm. So who else do you think are actors you have to watch, especially when we're looking at regional peacekeeping forces? Because mm. um, so far we've talked about why the regional keep, uh, peacekeeping forces might be effective and why the UN peacekeeping forces might be effective or not. But what possible struggles do you think regional peacekeeping forces might encounter um, should we transition to it? Yeah, I think the 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 one thing that you always have to be wary of with, with, when it comes to regional forces are regional interests. And that comes with rotations of leaders, you know, profile of these particular um, countries, whether they're, they're in a state of stability or not. And I think 2020 has, has definitely dawned on us that changes of leadership are already in place or, or, or are, are coming, or if not, they're already in transition. Like, you know, the, the Biden administration will have a, part, a, a very different attitude when it comes to international relations compared to Donald Trump. So maybe that would mean that there's a bit more stability with with NATO in the future, you know, with a group like NATO, because Joe Biden's gonna, in, in his administration, assert it a bit more, um, or maybe the EU with this new renewed relation would finally, um, you know, start investing a bit more on on NATO. I think for for Africa in general, you you also have to note a couple of changes in in the landscape as well. You know, Sudan's Omar al-Bashir died. Um, so there's a new government there. There's also a, a, an ongoing... Um, so I, I don't know if, you've, if, you've, if people have read about this, but in Ethiopia, the, their, pres- or their prime minister that was recently awarded with, uh, with a Nobel Peace Prize, I think last year. Now he's, uh, he's, he's actually fighting a domestic uh, war, the, I think, Tigris or something. I forgot the actual name of that territory. It's like an autonomous territory in Ethiopia. That's like the, the irony of, of being awarded a Nobel Peace Prize and then now actually launching a, a, a full-blown attack on a, on a small city uh, on its borders. So, you know, that, that's really the, the complication. In a way, you can say that uh, it's a bit more predictable when it comes to, re- to regional interests. Whereas the UN, for whatever it's worth, is a bit more predictable. Like, you know, there's a degree of stability there that you can't find anywhere else. I think that's, I think that's really nice. Um, I think we can end here. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to be a motion contributor for um, Debatable Open. It really means a lot, not just to us as organizers, but also to a lot of people who like are really just honestly struggling with IR <laughs> and just want to know more about how to be able to debate these kinds of topics. Um, thank you so much. Um, I think that's it for No, this... no, we have one last question oh. actually. So we know everyone's struggling with IR to different yeah, yeah. degrees. Like regardless of how much you've read up, there will always be motions you encounter that might just stump you or yeah, yeah. like no matter how many times you encounter the same motion, there will always be someone who knows more. And it can be intimidating to a lot of novices. So what advice can you give to debaters who are just starting their novice journeys, um, whether they're encountering IR motions or just any other motions that might be scary to them? 
Yeah, um, I would say, you know, always bring an almanac uh, <laughs> or buy an almanac. You know, I, I, I never actually, I wouldn't say that I started out debate knowing a lot about international relations. I just felt, I, I do feel like I've gotten to know more about it eventually. Uh, but even then, even when I didn't know much, I, I felt like it was very intuitive uh, understanding. Because it's, it's not about, you know, it, it is about knowing Uh, but it's also about just analyzing behavior, uh, how different organizations uh, work, how different uh, forces can pull or push each other. So if you have an almanac, you at least remind yourself that you're not going to enter around without any pronouns or without any <laughs> objects. You can at least name drop some organizations. <laughs> you don't. You don't. Because I think it uh, at the end, whenever you're new the one thing that really makes you underperform in IR motions is feeling like you don't know any, and then it shows and it manifests. But at least if you're, if you're a newbie and you have something to, to wrap around your, your head from, whether it's just a factoid in, 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 a, in, a, in a page, you know, that can help. Um, the other thing is get, get in the habit of just reading headlines. Even if you don't really invest so much time in it, just be aware of what's happening. I think it's a it's a growing uh, process, and then eventually it, it it'll all bang yourself out. And of course, listen to you know enriching discussions because because I also had to learn all of this, hearing other people describe and and simplify it for me. You know, very clever lectures, and it, it doesn't have to be a debate source. It could be lectures that you see online. You know, what, international relations 101 on on YouTube, or listen to podcast like uh, debatable you know so, oh, so, <laughs> so you can also like it, it's, it's really about just not being too intimidated by it because at the end of the day debate is about persuasion so you need to persuade yourself first before you can Ooh. persuade others yeah i like that i like that thank you so much of uh, so you heard it here please matter load everyone and just get an almanac get an almanac uh but, but don't like don't open it Like round one, <laughs> read beforehand. Yeah, read, read it beforehand. I think is the most important thing. So once again, Jano, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day for this and for helping us with this tournament. Uh, we really appreciate it. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next one. Bye. Bye bye.